0: Introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. This is Quantum of History. I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome into another episode. Today's episode 37 Casino Royale and the History of Arms Trafficking. We're also going to talk a lot about the West African slave trade and uh, a lot of good stuff as far as historical perspective about the um the history of trading because casino royale starts out and uh its main part the main catalyst for starting the entire operation is a weapons trade and uh, i think it's just a really interesting topic we're going to bring on a fan favorite thomas felix creighton uh newlywed newlywed he took the plunge congratulations guys uh so if you haven't felix never dies or i always say that every time i don't know why i swear you need to change your name to felix never dies fleming never dies. Give him a, uh, shout out, give him a congratulations and he's going to be on. And he's, his podcast is actually what kind of inspired this episode. I always want to do this podcast and this episode and this topic, but I listened to him. And if you guys are not checking out Thomas's, um, podcast, it's very good. A's for all beyond. It's a really great podcast. He talked about his, uh, piracy in, during in, in the Red Sea off the coast of Somalia. And, uh, I just really found it intriguing. So if you guys get a chance, check that out. It's called The Cost of Piracy. That's the episode that he did. It's a really good episode if you haven't listened to it. And uh, that's what kind of made me bring him on for this. And uh, I'm excited to go through this topic because it is an interesting topic. And I think that people will um, enjoy doing it. Also good to get back to the more traditional format of episodes. I've had a couple of... uh, episodes where i kind of went on a little off a little bonus episodes if you see an episode that's not numbered it's going to be one of these other episodes it's either bond related or just topical or something like that with the going woke and things like that and i'm i went through it and i you know you get some you get a lot of love you get a lot of hate you get a lot of things but as long as it elicits in a reaction that's what matters so um i got a lot of good support like thanks for everybody who reached out and say you know same thing good job way to tackle it uh, and then for the people who are angry, yeah, sorry, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, anytime you elicit a response, at least it gets its discussion going and the point was made. And, um, if people aren't reacting, then you're not saying anything. So I'm always excited. And, uh, we're, but this one's going to be more back to normal, back to the regular scheduled quantum of history again. So episode 37, Casino Royale, the history of weapons trafficking.
0: to a king? What's a king to a guy? What's a guy to a non-believer? Who don't believe in anything? make it out alive? Alright, alright. church the wild.
1: After the pre-title sequence concludes, the audience is brought into the very real in very deadly and dangerous world of African arms trading. Mr. White introduces an Albanian banker named Lachif to the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, or the LRA, in Uganda. The actor portrayal is assumed to be depicting Joseph Kony, buying weapons for his army. In the scene it is subtle, but you can notice all the children mixed in with the army, and this was done on purpose to further portray Kony and his LRA. This part of the movie is a small window into the sad, greedy, violent, and deadly world of African arms trading. To understand the poignancy of this scene, we first have to go back to the 7th century. In Eurocentric nations, much of the emphasis was placed on West African slave trade. History has taught us how slaves were taken from Africa to the Americans in droves. Many are led to believe that this is where slavery began, but it's far from reality. While certainly the West African slave trade was booming industry in the 16th and 17th century, it pales in comparison to the Muslim Arab trade that had been going on in East Africa for a thousand years before that. When the Arab world first were conquering from the east, they initially tried to conquer towards Europe. Their quest for Europe was stopped as Europeans were able to modernize weapons and fight off the Muslim advance. The Arab world then turned their course towards Africa. In Africa, the Arab world found a new source of slaves. As Africans converted to Muslim and began enslaving other tribes, new slave routes were created. It is against Muslim religion to enslave other Muslims. So the conquest for slaves was passed through non-Muslim tribes and nations. The route to Saudi Arabia went through the Red Sea, as the Arab nations were supplied with slaves. For Africa, this merely boosted an already in-place practice of slavery. Africans enslaving other Africans had long been a way of life prior to Arab arrival. With a newfound rise in demand, Muslim Africans were now enslaving non-Muslim Africans at an accelerated rate. As the 16th century began, European nations began colonizing throughout the world. Colonies in Asia and the Americans created a heightened demand for slaves. Initially the Portuguese, with their vast and well-established trading routes, were the first to embark on the slave trade. And by the 17th century, the Dutch and Great Britain had grown their networks. In the East African trade, Zanzibar, Tanzania, a small island just off the mainland coast, was a main hub. It is now a tourist destination for those looking to explore clear, white sandy beaches. But for centuries, this was a marketplace for slaves to be shipped across the Indian Ocean for cultivation of spices and raw materials. What did the Africans get in return? Overwhelming, the answer to that question has been guns, guns, and more guns. As European nations started to modernize their muskets and gunpowder munitions, the demand for these in Africa grew. The Europeans would trade with the African kings and tribal leaders. These African kings and tribal leaders are not worried with their subjects' needs, the famine, or the need for medicine, nor resources. These men have those things. They have the means to selfishly accumulate those things for their families and immediate entourage. They enjoy the fruits of their power, but in order to sustain this life, they must protect against their enemies. In that way, they are obsessed with having the biggest arsenal and the fiercest fighting forces. It is estimated that between 1750 and 1807, between 283 to 394 thousand firearms were imported into Africa annually. In 1807, the United States and Great Britain banned the purchase of African slaves thus drastically dropping the demand for slaves in the west african nations that did not however change the demand for weapons as african conflicts continued to grow throughout the centuries as the trade of slaves was diminishing it was raw materials and influence in trade routes that were of special interest to the european nations in return for being able to operate in the country keep trade routes and large amounts of cash the french and belgians were supplying ethiopia with hundreds of thousands of arms This trade was privately owned manufacturing deals under the protection of the state. Hundreds of thousands of arms and millions of munitions were flooded into Africa in this manner. This was all done legally, with ports open to trade. At the turn of the century, this was about to change. In the late 19th and early 20th, the private firearms trade was being cultivated by the emergence of merchants of death. These were private businessmen who sold arms as if they were selling furniture. These merchants of death accumulated vast amounts of wealth during this time. While they were getting wealthy the people subjugated to the violence of arming dictators arming kings and tribesmen faced a dire reality after world war one the league of nations looked to rein in the sale of arms throughout the world the goal was a worldwide disarmament this endeavor was poorly planned and had no enforcement power behind it what it did create was a system of licensing arms exportation in the prominent manufacturing nations. The first embargo used in this way was to prevent arms going into China from 1919 to 1929. This predates Mao Zedong, as China was built on a system of warlords at the time. The demand for arms was high as these warlords fought for power in the country. As such, nations not involved in the League of Nations and private industry within those countries quickly took advantage and found ways to get their guns into the hands of Chinese soldiers. As Francisco Franco and the Spanish Nationalists fought for control of Spain, Another opportunity arose to capitalize on conflict. Arm manufacturers quickly found a new marketplace for their goods. Prominent merchants of death worked in conjunction with foreign intelligence agencies and rising fascist powers to get Franco and his troops the arms they needed to win Spain. As World War II began, it was an all-out gun frenzy to supply the world with arms. At the end of World War II, the fighting was done, but the guns remained. This created a substantial black market to take old weapons of war and get them in the hands of present-day conflicts. By the time the Cold War was at its height, every continent was seeing an influx of weapons. The smart, smaller nation leaders would leverage the threat of going communist or going capitalist against the USSR or the USA to get themselves some state-sponsored arms. In 1991, the Soviet Union fell, and that meant the state-sponsored deals were falling through too. With state-sponsored arming diminishing, it was back to Africa for these dealers. Africa has never known a time without conflict and Africa remained a reliable place to make money from conflict. Somalia, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, Rwanda, and the Congo, and just about every sub-Saharan African nation saw a devastating rise of conflict. And Africa as a continent has very few companies capable of manufacturing weapons and ammo, not nearly enough to sustain the need and use of the arms. That creates a breeding ground for these merchants to death to come in and supply brutal and violent groups for weapons and cash. That brings us to 2005 and Casino Royale. The scene depicts Specter agents being merchants of death as they supply Joseph Kony. To fully understand how despicable of an act that is transpiring, you have to understand who Kony and who the LRA are. Founded in 1986 under its first name, the Holy Spirit Movement, the LRA was a resistance movement to overthrow the government in Uganda. The HSM was founded by a spiritual medium named Alice Laquena, who believed God was sending her on her missions. Her followers used sticks and stones to fight and would paint oil on their bodies as she told them it would stop bullets. The HSM had loyal and fierce following, but were defeated in 1987 by the Ugandan government. LaQuina fled Uganda and left the HSM without a leader. This is when Joseph Kony took the opportunity to take leadership. He did so saying that he wished to create a government based on the Ten Commandments. Though he never actually articulated what this thought actually meant in any meaningful or practical way, but it made for a good slogan. He renamed the group, the Lord's Resistance Army and went about his quest for power. As the 1990s came about, the LRA gained notoriety throughout the world for their massive child abductions. It is estimated since its inception that the LRA have abducted 67,000 children and used them as soldiers, slaves, and sex workers. They have been charged with slaughtering elephants in the region and poaching high prized animals. Coney has a warrant for him to be brought to justice for countless murders and war crimes. The Obama administration set up a coalition to defeat the LRI and bring Kony to justice. However, Kony remains at large today, most assuming that he remains in the nation of the neighboring car. The story is not unique to Africa, it's not unique to many places in the world as dictators, tyrants, and nefarious regimes have all been put in place through the sale and trafficking of arms throughout history. There are truly only a limited amount of countries that mass-produce firearms. State-sponsoring arming of nations is still going on today and has long been a facet of American foreign policy. Today we're seeing how Mexico, who have little to no arms manufacturers, are seeing cartels flooded with an endless influx of munitions and high-tech weaponry. Afghanistan is another example of pre 9 11 where United States would arm the Mujahideen with Soviet weapons by way of Venezuela. As the value of arms outweigh the desire for these nations to spend their money on resources to better nations, it remains a question of what to do going forward. Have any provisions in the past worked that could be used going forward? As international laws have attempted to further crack down on these types of merchants of death deals, a new creative way to sell arms has been created. Floating Armouries. Most countries do not allow ships to enter their waters carrying armed guards, let alone stockpiles of weapons for sale. These restrictions are limited to the territorial waters of the nation though. These territorial waters are only 12 nautical miles or 22 kilometers from the low water mark of the nation's coastline. International waters are essentially free from restrictive law and governance. The ship is bound by the flag that it flies, but even that becomes murky as ships fly flags different from that which they are registered to. This further complicated accountability and tracking of arms throughout the world. The only burden to bear is on the buyer to bring the purchased arms back into the country. This often means trafficking or bribery to get the arms from the water to the land. These floating armories often house food, medicine, and supplies to help curry sympathy. They are sometimes referred to as logistic support vessels, as a further way to mass their cargo. These ships can claim they are on mercenary missions or missions for beneficent purposes. These ships are also careful to keep their embarking and disembarking, restricted to only places where the laws are in favor or non-existent. Again, you're really just there to sell weapons. But if you put medicine, food and supplies in there, you can say that you're on a a mission to save the people when actually you're just there to uh, to sell weapons. The idea is to stay legal while avoiding accountability. The floating armories are accompanied by other ships that will protect the armory, as well as keep the contents of the armory in international waters. The accompanying ships will be the ones to go into the nation waters, dock, do their business and dealings, and transport the buyers to international waters. This keeps the arms safe from confiscation and inspection, while allowing the business deals to take place. The main concentration of these vessels are in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. These would be the types of vessels that Spectre would operate and sell arms to a man like Kony. It's a genius way to avoid any scrutiny or end up in a known nation's domain, where the laws can be arbitrary or capricious. While this practice is not illegal, it creates an operating environment where piracy and the fear of terrorists overtaking these vessels and weapons falling into the wrong hands. The demand for weapons never seems to go away as the perpetual conflict and violence supersedes the desire for peace. In the business of arms trafficking and sales, peace hurts profits. The main profiteers of this type of trafficking are impoverished, war-torn areas like Uganda, Somalia, and Ethiopia. These tribal-type communities with high violence are the perfect place for these floating armories to make their money. The question of morality and ethics have no place in the world of arms trafficking. This world, the world of gray and of violence, it's exactly the type of world that makes for great bond stories like the one in Casino Royale. And that's where we're going to bring in Thomas Felix Creighton in here. Again, Fleming never dies. He did. Uh, he's, really, he's very knowledgeable about these floating armories and uh, very knowledgeable about the East African... Uh, Arms straight. So we're going to bring him in. So welcome on, Thomas Felix Creighton. My walk is so cocky, the bounces don't even stop me. Ain't no pat down, no ID. They know me, that it. I be bitch. I pack out
0: the lobby just from fans trying to find me. hey I got daughters and mothers trying to fuck with the gun. Two toes like the joke of my Harley Quinn, where the choke let them suicide. So much smoking. All
1: right, I want to welcome back in. Again, this is fourth time. I just keep going <laughs> to the Thomas Felix well for all my content, uh, but I'm very excited. Thomas Felix Creighton, you know him from Fleming Never Dies. Now he has his own podcast, uh, All Beyond Never Dies. It is a fantastic podcast. If you guys have not checked it out, it is fantastic. It has actually inspired my, basically just kind of ripping him off today for this, for my episode. <laughs> so again, I'm very excited to welcome in Thomas Felix Creighton and welcome stateside, my man.
0: Thank you very, very much. I'm delighted to be here and, and thank you for a perfect introduction. I couldn't have done better I'd written it myself.
1: <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so the reason I had you on today, of course, besides being my the the, the, the four-time guest, uh, is that I heard your podcast and I was just so interested. One, uh, it was your podcast, The Cost of Counter-Piracy in Somalia, again, if you guys have not listened to it yet, it is a fantastic episode. It's a lecture that you did. And it got me into thinking not only about this podcast, but also I was always kind of looking into international law and find it so interesting. So your podcast really also just helped broaden or narrow my focus about what I actually want to even go into as far as life in general. So I really want to thank you for that. And uh, let's go ahead and just go ahead and get talking about today. We're talking more about the piracy, about arms trafficking, about floating armories, child piracy. There's all sorts of things. So just go ahead and you want to introduce your podcast, what you were talking about that lecture, and then how we go from there.
0: Thank you very, very much. Um, So the podcast is, yeah, Albion Never Dies. I didn't want to do another James Bond podcast. I feel it's covered. I feel absolutely (laughs) happy listening to all of these. Uh, But I just thought I'd do one on British culture that kind of relates. So it's not totally separate. And so I've been putting out as much as I can to explain the context of, say, traditional British culture. Uh, which is something I've often taught in other countries, um, and I spent a lot of my life as an expat. Um, so seven years in Turkey, uh, six years in China, now the United States, and a few others. Um, and often I've been asked lots of questions about British culture, which has had me going on kind of rabbit holes to research. The episode you describe, yeah, the cost of counter-piracy, that came from some old research I did now about seven years ago, and I was lecturing at a British university on, well, piracy and maritime security and that was drawing on a few different experiences i had university royal naval units gave me great insight into the british royal navy and i was doing a master's in finance accounting and management and that was at the time when somali piracy you know captain phillips had just come out um it was an interesting topic so basically i rang up all my friends of friends and saw if i could do uh, a bit of inside industry research uh, and i ended up having a published paper on it and as i say lecturing on all these civilian companies that take all the stuff from China, ship it to Europe, a fairly mundane industry in many, many ways. Um, but suddenly they're dealing with the major security crisis of our time, which is piracy. Um, so these aren't naval, you know, military naval guys. Uh, they're not security guys. But suddenly they have to deal with it. Uh, they have no choice. So I found that a really interesting topic mm. of how people who, as I say, have no particular background in dealing with this, suddenly have to deal with
1: this. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because you're dealing with these notions around the Red Sea and along that East African corridor where they don't have a strong centralized government. They can't make very good, I don't think, deals with these manufacturers, these arm manufacturers. Mm. They certainly are not doing it by themselves. So it's right for this area where these private companies hire these places to protect these things and have the floating armories which avoid all this, this scrupulation by being in international waters. While trafficking to questionable regimes, kings, dictators, warlords, and all this sort of stuff, and that whole area is just ripe for it. So, what did you find about your when you first came on to doing your research about the arms trafficking that was going on, especially on the, the around Djibouti and the East the, uh, mm. um, East Africa corridor there?
0: Well, first of all, it's the legal vacuum, or perhaps the, the authoritative vacuum. So, the area that's affected by piracy is known as the high-risk area it's clearly defined and on the kind of the right-hand side of that square is somalia uh, which hasn't had a centralized government for 20 30 years it does have governments Hmm. uh different tribal areas puntland somaliland and so on do have a different and comes since the 60s 70s and it is one of the most uh undernourished uh populations in the world and that's Hmm. across the top of the high risk area. So bordering these two, um, we, we're seeing kind of an absence of local authorities. And it's from that that we get piracy, right? We don't, mm. we don't have piracy off the west coast of the United States. <laughs> you have a strong local government that's able to, to project um, law enforcement into the sea. Um, so you get it in that vacuum of, let's say, legitimate uh, authority.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you got in there, so what do you think is is the main, um, as far as trying, do you think when they're piracy, are they more targeting these arms traffickers or are they targeting other just regular cargo or do they know or is there something if you get, if you can detect which one of these are the floating armories that we say, are mm. these are these like the prime ones that they want or is it more that they just will take anything that comes through the, the harbor?
0: First of all, they target, uh, for example, an oil tanker if they can, Mm -hmm. uh, then a cargo container, because uh, those ships have high running costs every day that they're captured by pirates. uh, The companies are losing a huge amount of money. So the amount of money on that is enormous. Uh, There is a a pretty free uh, arm supply from Somalia itself and Yemen. Uh, I remember the proportion of guns to people is three to one. Um, and that's really a layover of previous conflicts, which was um, a Soviet-backed conflict in the 70s. Um, so there is a great wealth of weaponry in the region.
1: And as, as far as, like, you, when you say that, do you find that the, the difference of the cultures as far as the emphasis on having weapons over material? Because you think that, you just said three to one. That's, that's mm. an amazing statistic. Yeah. Uh, you think about, and then you're talking about the most malnourished places on Earth. What do you think it leads to, what can, kind of things are, we're talking Like, at least the child piracy, child labor, child soldiers, what happens mm. in, a, in, a, in an environment like that?
0: So what we have in the region is a very, very tribal um, culture, so the tradition is me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my brother and my cousin against the world. Um, that huge supply of weapons is really a layover from the Soviet-backed conflict in the 70s and then the more modern conflict in uh, Somalia. And so what we end up with is a series of tribes where the young men need to provide, right? We have that in every culture in the world that the young fellows need to go out and and make enough to get a house so they can marry and start a family. It's very relatable for a lot of us. Uh, There, there's such limited opportunities, you can't get enough from fish, um, yeah. Again, with the fishing stocks being depleted, allegedly, um, and again with that tribal point of view, they feel that their fishing stocks have been depleted by Russian trawlers, Chinese trawlers. That's the accusation. So, if the foreigner is removing uh, their ability to live, then they will attack the foreigner.
1: I mean, that just, that's the justification. I mean, that just reeks of trying to get sympathy for violence, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I get is disputed it.
0: Disputed by, uh, by American sailors in the region. Um, I'd say the Russians and Chinese you expect to deny the charges, but even American um, seamen have kind of said they don't see this. Happen.
1: Well, I'm sure. Look, look. I mean, there's not. Yeah, it is. It's it's all the curry f- <laughs> to uh, sympathy for for violence, and you see it all the time, it diff- played out in different avenues in society where um, your violent or your bad choices you can blame on somebody else. A higher power to gain sympathy so that you can, again, do nefarious acts. And then, mm-hmm. by say that, it's not my fault. It's not my fault I'm doing it. Yeah. The Russians came in, they took all our fish. Uh, it's very much a... You're seeing it all over the place.
0: Yeah, it's the ideology of the victimhood.
1: Yes, the victimhood and then my, your, my perceived yeah. victimhood.
0: What is interesting is that if you look at satellite imagery of Somalia, you can trace the development of Somalia over the course of piracy. So, at the beginning, what we see is a very, very underdeveloped uh, country. And then we start to see houses with a second story. We start to see land cruisers. Uh, we start to see towns developing. So, if you're interested in the development of Africa, um, actually, piracy has been an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing for uh, this region of Somalia.
1: Very Robin Hood feel,
0: right? Exactly, exactly
1: where do you see it going from now has it so it, since it started around the I believe you were talking about how it started around the 2010s two thousand and twelve yeah. um, have you seen it gone down with these added with those security measures yeah. and things like that
0: Yes, yeah, so the uh, the attacks have gone down and disappeared for the last few years uh, at least successful attacks have disappeared, um, although I might even have to quantify that and say um, reported attacks have yeah. disappeared. Uh, which is a very important distinction, um, that it's not the law that you have to report it. Um, there's no authority that you have to report to. It is voluntary, um, which is one of the challenges for research on this.
1: Yeah. You know, First, just, just to interject on, on what I find in, in local. So if a commercial business in Baltimore gets robbed, gets robbed. Let's, what we have to do is we have to shut down the store, get fingerprints, mm-hmm. shut it down, and it locks it down for like two hours. Well, what we found by doing that policy was that businesses would stop even... Uh, mm. uh, would stop even reporting it because now, in addition to being robbed, now you're inconveni- now the law enforcement is inconveniencing you for if you arrest them, what really actually happens? You're yeah. not going to get your merchandise back, and you're losing your money. So your money over justice is that kind of the same thing that happens with these a lot of these tankers. You're talking about oil tankers, which are mm. millions and millions of dollars a day if they lose if they're brought down. Do uh, you think that at this point it's just better to just move on with it and just not even report it?
0: There is that risk, um, that what is the incentive of reporting, um, especially, you know, human rights apply at sea as much as they do on land, right? So if the pirates attack, uh, there are rules of engagement, it's called the 100 series rules uh, developed by the human rights at sea uh, charity. Um, so again, if if you respond, there is a question of how do you respond, you mm. are legally responsible for how you respond as well as being morally responsible, there have been murder convictions uh, for people who have um, gone too far.
1: Yeah, that's uh, a, such a great area. I found that really interesting in your in your episode too, where you talk about how you can defend your own ship, but if another ship who sees you being attacked, there's a real gray area about where you can actually help somebody else in need, whereas here we've got like good citizen acts and stuff like that where you are expected to, to interject, whereas at sea... Why do you think that it's so frowned upon to, if you see somebody getting pirated that they wouldn't want somebody to help?
0: Exactly. So, again, it's a difference between on land. There's no dispute about who has authority. In international mm. waters, uh, it's just less clear yeah. who has authority and over what exactly. Right. So,
1: and, so, and so for for these floating armories, so you've got... Mm. Have you found who who actually is profiting the most for this? Is it high profit or is it just like very low level profit? Because we talk about in the movie Casino Royale, basically Spectre was funding um, their, their shortening the stock of the airline industry, taking a little bit of money and trying to make it a lot. Do you think that it's very lucrative or is it more just by the time you're done dealing with everything, it's not that lucrative of a, of, an, of an enterprise to endeavor?
0: That's commercially sensitive information I wasn't able to get. But, going off uh, what I know, we're seeing a very high risk industry, and generally, if you have such high risk, you expect a high reward
1: yeah yeah there has to be they have to be making money. Where do these warlords yeah. even get their money? Where are they profiting so you 've got the money to buy weapons? Where are these coming from? Because I know in places a lot of times in places like North Korea, where it's basically just taking foreign aid, and then that was supposed to be meant for um, for clothing, for food, things like that, and then it becomes into weapons or, or things like that. Is you thinking that it happens in, in these African things where there's mm. a lot of charity that comes in that's supposed to be meant for one reason and then resources are allocated towards something else? Or where else are they getting the money from? I don't know if you have previous information mm. on that.
0: Well, at the moment, I say we see the, the night and day change in Somalia from piracy. So before it was very, very poor. And international charities are kind of stopped going there since the Black Hawk Down incident. Um, Mm. You remember the Ridley Scott movie all about it. Um, So that was Somalia and as I say that kind of scared off a lot of international aid. There is aid going in through Djibouti in a limited, uh, very controlled way. Um, Then you get Islamic terror organisations that rarely draw on the international finance available there and then to be honest a lot of it is just the local economy, the local farming economy um, which another factor can be global warming. Um, so if we have the the spread of the Sahara Desert uh, affecting uh, uh, they need to go somewhere and they mm. need to get money from somewhere so that can become another drive for the security nexus of the region
1: hmm. Great stuff, Great stuff. Um, Do you have anything <laughs> more that you want to add to it?
0: I mean it's interesting the floating armories we've got two major companies, one is US based and one is UK based and that's a major change from the from the time when I did my lecture which is I say I recorded about seven years ago until now um, so seven years ago I was hearing reports rumors that these things were being set up because the UK and the US you know our citizens are involved right mm-hmm. our shipping is involved we're both major shipping companies uh, countries and so essentially people wanted to have some kind of organization some kind of framework um, so the US based one is uh, Adverfort and the MV Seaman Guard Ohio was one of the ships that was a floating armory and it got into the newspapers in Well in recent years starting in 2013 because it started to go towards India And it's got a lot of guns on it. So in international waters, uh, they were licensed verified But as they headed into uh, Indian waters, well, they're not licensed to go into Indian waters. they would say they did not Uh, the Indian Coast Guard said they did And the Indian Coast Guard detained all of them, Uh, put them into prison for two years, and then put them on trial, in which they're sentenced to five years in prison uh, on terrorism charges. Wow. Now, the book's just come out. It's called Surviving Hell, the Brutal True Story of a Chennai Six Prisoner. Chennai Six, there were six British uh, citizens who were put into these Indian prisons in what is a third world country. Um, I said, they would say these charges were untrue, they weren't even in international waters by their equipment, um, and here you have a group of six white British men in an Indian prison. Um, one of them, I'd say, is an ex-paratrooper, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, who writes a pretty harrowing account of, i said say, the six had to go round as a group in the prison um, to, to fend off attacks by murderers and rapists who've been told that they were terrorists against India. Um, so it is an appalling story. He had a spy pen, was able to record some of it. So this is something covered in the UK media um, quite heavily. So,
1: what was it? Do you think that why did India have such a was why did they have it out for these guys?
0: I think they are very very anxious about having such large numbers of weaponry in the Indian Ocean, um, which they may have been international waters, but it's all called the interna- uh, Indian Ocean. There may have been um, corruption involved, yeah. the usual money trail. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what they were trying to apply pressure to. It could have been just local uh, Tamil Nadu politics rather than Indian politics. Uh, yeah. India is, of course, our ally and has joined the piracy patrols with us. Um, so it is it is a baffling story in many, many ways, and it does just seem to be a Kafka-esque hell of bureaucracy.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at it somewhere else that has the caste system and, and such yeah. class classes are defined and maybe it's just that you don't want weapons anywhere near um, yeah. any kind of uprisings. You want to keep your high Well Who knows? That's Absolutely. an interesting... I'll have to, I'll have to look, read more about that because that sounds really interesting. I'm yeah.
0: going to get go to the, uh, the second one. So that was the U.S. one. Okay, I'm focusing on the British citizens because, you know, I say, the former British paratroopers got in our papers. Um, the MNG Maritime is the other. And set up by an extraordinary fellow worth Googling called Mark Nicholas Gray. And he's got a really interesting story uh, from when he was a UN peacekeeper in Croatia. Um, it was a, a single man who saved the life of 20,000 people. Um, wow. And it's quite a Bond-esque story to my mind. Um, he was a peacekeeper as the Serbs were retreating from Croatia. The Serbs, according to the papers, according to all good reports that I've seen, uh, put explosives all around a dam. It's called the Perugia Dam got 540 cubic meters of water, it's about 65 meters high, and it's uh, by a town. So the Serbian idea was to fill this dam beyond capacity, weaken it with explosives, and as they left, the water would simply wipe out the town. And as they were retreating, he saw what was going on, exceeded his orders, went in, and released the water slowly in a controlled way so that the dam was not destroyed. Um, And that was kept quiet for about two years until somebody finally came out and told the story
1: that you know people act like genocide i, I know a lot of times here that like genocide is so far away or like it's some ancient history and what yeah. we are dealing with serbs and croatians in that whole genocide that happened in 1990s i mean we forget about how yeah. crazy that that was and how it was in my lifetime and i'm not that old i mean i'm old but not that old Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy to think about.
0: One of the interesting things about that—it in our lifetime, right? It's the breakup of Yugoslavia. We we both remember it. We also, for me, I remember Médecins Sans Frontières, which uh, is Doctors Without Borders in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember them going in. I remember all kinds of UN organizations. So yeah. We remember all the massive organization going in. Something I never really thought about is where did these organizations come from and how did they how did they start? And it was recently pointed out to me it was um, the civil war in Nigeria in the '60s. Um, the Biafra War is where a lot of these things were started. Certainly, Médecins Sans Frontier was started uh, in the 60s because of the Biafra War. And that's where there's a young journalist named uh, Frederick Forsyth, was there, you may have heard of, yeah. uh, who wrote very harrowing accounts of what was going on there. Uh, he was also an informer for MI6. Um, And then turn some of those accounts into a novel called The Dogs of War, a large segment of which is how to smuggle weapons. (laughs) If you're interested in the uh, the illegal (laughs) transfer of weapons from one country to another, The Dogs of War pretty well is a blueprint for how to do it. And in fact, this book is inspired by true events, but it has also inspired many others. Um, So Margaret Thatcher's son has been in the courts, uh, allegedly for his involvement in an attempted coup in West Africa based on the book.
1: Well, I remember, I remember you talking about that in your top five books that you have to read. In, in your, another oh, episode, yeah. You had, yeah. And I remember, I remember that one, so I definitely uh, have to check out *The Dogs of War* for sure. That sounds like a great read. See, my staff had
0: forgotten I said that on my podcast.
1: <laughs> it's funny how you forget. Sometimes I'll, the people will mention topics to me, and I'd be like, "What?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I actually did a whole episode on that." It's funny. You'll just, you'll just, you'll do so much of the stuff, and you'll get so much. Uh, yeah. You'll speak so much, you'll forget all about it. All right Thomas well thank you so much this has been a pleasure as always um, anything else thank Any other, you very much. Any other fun, if you guys are not listening it's all Beyond never dies on podcast anywhere where podcasts are leave a five star review like comment subscribe all that good stuff because uh, it's truly worth it and uh, definitely a great listen if you guys not have heard it yet.
0: Thank you very much it's a pleasure coming on here rapidly becoming my favorite podcast <laughs> <apart from mine. laughs>
1: All right Thomas thank you so much man. Until then, next time, take care, buddy. If you like what you saw, then hit that subscribe button. Comment down below and leave a like and then hit that subscribe button. Why are you not hitting that subscribe button? Hit that subscribe button.